0: Hello and welcome to Contemplations and today we're going to be talking about Sigmund Freud and psychoanalysis. Spoiler alert, he came up with it. Um, Yes, I'm sure most people have heard of who he is. I have um, spoken quite negatively about him but I'm going to be a lot more charitable today than I might otherwise be because some of his ideas are very good and of course um, we're going to talk about the context in which he came up with his ideas which is kind of a bit more forgiving on him but uh thank you very much harry for joining me um you've thank been you. asking
1: me questions about
0: freud um you've been doing some research i, I, I have been doing
1: some research um from some that i would imagine people consider controversial sources but um from an evolutionary biology perspective freud's ideas seem to be somewhat fraught and untestable uh i also find it interesting that i think Most people's exposure and knowledge of Freud is primarily through uh, the mainstream media and television and films because they really have presented a picture of who Freud was. He's been parodied, he's been represented, he's been portrayed in many... He's been
0: played by Aragorn himself, Viggo Mortensen.
1: Yes, he seems... The public conscious understanding of Sigmund Freud seems to be a media construct. And what I have read about him has not been particularly flattering... To his overall character or his ideas but i am interested to hear mm-hmm. what you have to say about him because you are more knowledgeable about this than i am
0: well thank you um yeah i i wouldn't be as negative as saying you know he's got a questionable character i think there's certainly elements of what he says particularly the sexual stuff where you're just like hang on a minute
1: That that's primarily what i've read and okay. what, what i have read about his ideas on sexuality seems to be, and it is almost entirely backed up by his own words in private correspondence, seem to be intentionally subversive of Western cultural norms. So the sexuality stuff I'm going to be having a very critical eye towards.
0: That's all right. I'm not exactly a uh, proponent of it myself, yeah. funnily enough.
1: The, the rest of it I'm more interested in hearing about.
0: Mm-hmm. So Freud is obviously referred to as the father of psychoanalysis, and this is a a relatively commonly used um, label to to give him because he was the first psychoanalyst, and so I, I find it amusing actually to refer to Freud as the father, given his uh, uh, complexes of family dynamics. But uh, it's rather, Edipal of you, it is indeed. Um, I'm glad you got what I was getting at there, but. The, the psychoanalytic perspective that has its ties to Freud is still around to this day you can see a, a psychoanalyst in in therapy there are still psychoanalysts practicing research today and it, it's interesting actually that it's held on for this long because it was the first attempt really at a more scientific and I, I emphasis on the word more um, <laughs> uh, approach to clinical psychology of course the term psychology is somewhat anachronistic as we'll see because it hadn't really been adopted of course the psyche was a term that is borrowed from Greek I think mm. um, and well, w- so that's existed for a very long time
1: one of the, uh, as far as I can tell, the the major offshoot from Freudian psychology is Jungian psy- well, that, psychoanalysis. That, there were lots and lots of
0: followers were... of Freud, and there are lots of denominations, if you will, and different interpretations. And because Freud took the approach of, well, here's what I think, the, I mean, he explicitly says in The Unconscious, like, my ideas are just a framework to explore further don't necessarily take them as a given because I've changed my views over the years, and which is fairly reasonable, actually. And I think that um, one of the things that can get over-egged is that Freud seemed to think that he had all the answers. And I think that this comes from the power dynamic of I'm the psychoanalyst in the chair, you're the person lying down, I'm in a nice chair upright, you're lying down prostrate. And the sort of body language and power dynamic of that situation creates the perception that a psychoanalyst needs to be elitist which isn't n- necessary but one of the uh, the just criticisms of the, the sort of clinical approach is that it's very up to the discretion of the psychoanalyst in question like the individual's notion of how the human mind works it, it-
1: seems very interpretive as far as i remember from reading peterson's 12 rules for life he has Mm -hmm. a bit of a description of the freudian psychoanalytic process which is that as you say the patient would lay back on the on um on a sofa depending on what kind of therapy they're doing as well within Um, psychoanalysis sorry freud would sit there and listen to you babble on and on and on and on and then give you potentially a bit of an interpretation of what it all means at the end of it yes Uh, That's one notion of it, yeah. yeah, And talking therapy, I'm not that familiar with. I'm aware that some people think that just talking out your problems is one Mm -hmm. way of dealing with them and and being able to process them. I don't know if that's exactly what people were hoping for when they went to him, but... Well, I
0: think actually talking therapy is quite a good approach. Just talking about problems. You don't need to be a psychologist to know that talking about problems makes... Them feel better and more bearable. But um, we're going to be talking about the actual clinical treatment side of it towards the end. I think establishing the actual theories underlying mm. the practice is the best way of going about it because he also had lots of theories about um, the human mind that wasn't um, necessarily entirely focused on when it goes wrong. He wanted to understand the normal human mind. And I kind of shared that notion. I didn't want to be a clinician because I'm like, I, I don't want to understand it when it goes wrong because we still don't understand it when it actually is working as intended. So surely we want to to get this nailed down first. And that's part of the reason I've been drawn towards the, the study of the f- sort of functioning human mind as, as mm. dismissive as that sounds to people with mental illness. I don't mean it like that, but simply that I don't have any mental illnesses, I'm more interested in how my mind works normally. And so that's just what I was drawn to. And I think that there may have been an element of that in in Freud, but not entirely. But then also he was a physician. But let's talk about some of the background and history of of where his ideas came from, because I think it's very important to understand um, the significance of psychoanalysis his contribution to the then sort of infant stages of psychology as well as to give him a fair assessment, judge him based on the standards of his time rather than by modern standards where we have things like neuroscience that are sort of undeniably useful. So I think it's good to contextualize the pre-Freud era. So in 1879 Wilhelm Wundt um, who was a German, um, set up the first psychology laboratory um, at the University of Leipzig, and was the first person to describe themselves as a psychologist. He did, he's kind of the person that I would go to and would say, he's the, the person that started psychology not necessarily freud because he came later and and didn't take as much of an experimental approach and because my background is research and you know empirical observation and all of that side of things i have a greater appreciation for that than the clinical side of things but if you ask a clinician they might put more emphasis on freud
1: okay what's the difference what what do you mean when you say clinician a clinician is someone
0: who actually meets with patients and has mm. a practical Um, dealing with people on the ground so to describe someone as a clinician they meet with patients and try and work through their problems whatever they be they they may not even be sort of emotional problems they could be you know I've had an accident and I'm having to recover with a certain amount of brain damage that affects my motor skills or something like that so it doesn't necessarily have to be you know someone in a padded room um, bobbing up and down there are lots of different things and they work quite closely these days as well with, um, you know, doctors in this sort of physical health sense as well. All right. But a, a researcher can just be looking to study new knowledge or evaluating our, our current knowledge, checking if it's consistent with certain principles, things like that. And so the term research is actually far more broad because you can also be a clinical researcher as well. And so research researcher encompasses everything, all of the different fields of um, psychology. But a clinician is very specialized because it's describing someone who's a practitioner. But you can also be a clinical psychologist who conducts research. Uh, So hopefully that's not confusing.
1: I think we understand, yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: But anyway, Wilhelm Wundt, what he did in 1879 was he defined what psychology was. He situated it between philosophy and physiology, uh, which is very important because that's where it stayed to this day. He um, defined how it should be studied, i.e. the epistemology, um, began the tradition of lab-based experiments and focused on empirical study and particularly looked at things like sensory perception. Which are perhaps a bit more biologically based, mm. right? They still play into how your mind interprets things, but looking at how you actually perceive things in terms of like optics or and, uh, and when
1: was he around?
0: Um, well, he set up the first lab in 1879.
1: Oh, well, that seems to line up with the sort of time where a lot of the a lot of um, larger scale research into the natural sciences of. of um, Human biology began going on. So that makes sense that you would also want to look into the structure mm -hmm. of the mind in that way. I
0: think once um, we had a better understanding of physiology, psychology was one of the more natural steps because, of course, if you're dying of disease, how you feel about it is not necessarily as important (laughs) as curing the disease, funnily enough. But sort of carrying on in a timeline, in 1881, so this is what, only two years. After Wundt set up the laboratory, um, Freud graduated from the University of Vienna as a medical doctor. So that's a good university. And he was a a doctor, which I think people actually skirt over Mm. that fact. Um, Obviously, you couldn't be a doctor of psychology because it didn't really exist as a a discipline you could study at university.
1: But he was trained in, uh, would it have been medicinal practices at the time? Yeah, he
0: he was uh, a medical man, really. Hmm. So he actually spent years comparing human brains to that of non-human animals. So his specialization was still the brain. And in fact, some of his research whilst at university played an important role. I think it was um, on things like nervous tissue. Um, That helped the discovery of the neuron in 1890 uh, or in the 1890s. And that always gets overlooked. So, you know, he's, he's not necessarily a slouch. That all on its own is worthy of remembrance without any of the other stuff.
1: I I think this is probably where the media perception of him that I was referring to comes into it, which is that... And this is something that he promoted himself. He Mm -hmm. was famously a uh, self-promoter within the media, and he even, as part of his psychoanalysis, set up a secret uh, committee of psychoanalysts who began journals and communications with the media to present a particular idea a particular picture of freud to the world and then with later film adaptations and uh, featuring and things where he's featured in is things like sherlock holmes and sigmund freud team up so that they can solve <laughs> murder mysteries that has led to this earlier part of his life being as you mentioned skirted over because he himself only wanted to highlight by the looks of it his psychoanalytic work
0: It's amazing how many figures in history that we say are sort of key people in the development of our civilization that were just good at marketing and that other people were doing similar things at similar times and uh, they just happened to be the one most savvy at how to manipulate the media. still true to this day. And he had
1: a lot of friends in the media so.
0: That's true. So in 1882, which is a year after he graduated, Joseph Breuer, um, who was a Physician friend of Freud, of course, he knows lots of physicians. He studied, um, you know, that side of things. Described the case of Bertha Pappenheim, who people may know as Anna O. That's her sort of alias, because of course, when you're talking about medical cases, you don't actually give people's records when you're doing a public-facing case study, because that's not ethical. Even in the 19th century, they realized that, yes, talking about people's health conditions isn't nice, But yes, Anna O is normally the thing that people who might know a bit about psychoanalysis would be familiar with, and he described this case to Freud, um, and we're going to look at this case study in great detail, but it's just worth mentioning that this is sort of the thing that gets the ball rolling for Freud, because it was an interesting case that we will break down, but it was from that sort of physiology world that he went into psychology, I suppose. So... By 1886, he first started providing therapy. Um, By 1896, he coined the term psychoanalysis, which is quite some years later, isn't it? It's 15 years after he graduated from university. Um, In 1900, he published published the book, sorry, not his first book, um, The Interpretation of Dreams, which is his most famous book. 1908, Um, The Vienna Psychoanalytic Society was formed and they held international meetings for the first time. So you can see that it started snowballing quite quickly within the space of, what, 10, 15 years, there was already an international society. So Mm. that strikes me as if there was a first for this sort of thing. And, you know, sort of the late Victorian era, you know, the late 19th century, there was a sort of sea change in the culture of Europe. People were starting to read things like horror and psychological Mm. horror. Um, People started getting interests in anatomy. There was this view of the academic man, if you will. It wasn't necessarily formalized, but there was this newfound respect for academia as um, developing the frontiers of human knowledge and there's this sort of notion of the sciences finally reigning supreme and you start seeing a growth of things like atheism and everything had already started in mo- motion that would create the modern world i think that's mm. fair to say
1: well with all of this i think it is also important to note that freud himself did view at least part of his work as a form of uh, political activism and he was attempting to change the normative values of german society that he was operating. well he was
0: austrian but it was a sort of germanic culture right? he,
1: he commented a lot on german ideals mm-hmm. and so a lot of what he was doing in regards to setting up conferences setting up committees and doing this would have been part of his political activism as well as purely spreading it for scientific purposes
0: mm-hmm. yeah and i think that um he was quite aware of the marketability of his ideas because of the sort of salacious nature of some of the sexual theories um led to a lot of discussion which led to his rise to prominence if you will Mm. and he his focus particularly on repression which we'll get onto later seems to speak of uh, a man who was able to read the room so to speak of the culture he existed in because it's certainly fair to say that in the sort of 19th century people were sexually conservative for the most part certainly more so than today yes by a significant margin and
1: i would argue that that sea change in attitudes is partially to do with the spread of freud's ideas at least through the political actors who later picked them up and acted on them they were famously influential on the frankfurt school Mm -hmm. for instance who everybody who watches this channel and watch it and is on the website is surely aware of the Frankfurt School and the influence that they had on ideas going into the latter half of the 20th century especially people like Herbert Marcuse who explicitly said that Freud was a big influence on him and said that he wanted to take Freud's ideas of sexual repression of western society even further than Freud did and um, I would argue I would make the argument and I think it can be substantiated that certain level of sexual repression in a society is a good thing because it forces people to take their energy that they would instead spend um, chasing tail, so to speak, doing more (laughs) productive things instead.
0: Yes. I think you're you're onto something there, funnily enough. It's almost like we have a conservative podcast, isn't it?
1: Yes, yes. So
0: let's get on to the psychoanalytic theory. And I think the most essential of all is... Freud's contribution to understanding the structure of the human mind, and he believed that the, the human mind consisted of three things. So it was the conscious, the pre-conscious, and the unconscious mind. And it's worth saying that at this time, the the notion of the unconscious had been proposed as a sort of formal theory, but Freud did a tremendous amount to popularize this notion, mm-hmm. and now we know there is an unconscious mind and it almost seems absurd to to think that there was a time where we didn't believe that at least to my psychologist's mind
1: what do we mean when we say the unconscious mind and where how was it that freud developed his idea was it based on empirical research was it based on his understanding of the human brain and the research that he'd already done into it or was it something that he um logically thought out well
0: it makes sense from a sort of physiological perspective because he would be aware of the fact that there are processes that our body um conducts that we're not necessarily aware of you can't you know your heart is beating but you don't will it to beat it it's it's a a thing that's obviously plugged into more physiological things than neurological
1: it's similar to the way that you don't have to think about breathing if, yeah if, if everything's working properly until you start thinking about breathing and if you just started thinking about breathing watching this <laughs> i'm terribly sorry you've just done it to me yeah but the second you start thinking about breathing you uh, you sort of suddenly start to regulate it purposefully but outside of that it's something that happens unconsciously
0: mm-hmm. so there had been theories banded about and um that there's an obvious overlap here between how the body works in a physical sense in a mental sense and so the the jump between well there are things that are automatic and go on without our awareness in terms of our biology but does it go on in our mind which of course is still our biology but you know just to make the distinction between the two and so it makes sense as well as the fact these ideas were um being circulated in a small way i suppose but they were still controversial and uh, there were people denying the existence of the unconscious mind up until the, the 20th century so it's um, kind of a bizarre thing in my mind because it seems like the unconscious is the the primary thing it's the mm-hmm. thing that does most of the mental work
1: so freud's ideas on this were based on the ideas that had come before it and he was building on top of those then
0: Well, yes, um, I think most ideas do. So that's not really a way of demeaning what he did. No, Um, I'm not trying to demean. I'm just trying to make it clear Um, for my own understanding more (laughs) than anything. I think the notion of a pre-conscious was unnecessary. If I were to define, you know, based on these categories, the human mind, I would say the conscious mind and the unconscious. And it's fair to his idea of the pre-conscious is that it holds thoughts and feelings that can be easily brought into the consciousness but can't you just say that there are uh, different parts of the unconscious mind that are easier to be made conscious than others? Yeah, you don't that, necessarily that, need three parts.
1: Yeah, that sounds like... It, that, honestly, that sounds like he was just trying to make the theory sound a bit fancier than it was.
0: Hmm. Perhaps. But um, just to go over how he defined each so we're perfectly clear it could be a lot worse. So the conscious mind includes thoughts and feelings that are currently in your awareness. We still use awareness as a proxy to define consciousness even to this day. We, don't, we still don't know how to define human consciousness because it's such a broad concept. It encompasses so much of um, the human mind that if you narrow it down, you're still cutting out a very large amount of things. It seems like a very broad, spread out thing. There's not one part of the brain where consciousness is seated. There are parts that are more associated with it. Um, For example, the prefrontal cortex. Um, You know, you can compare the human brain to that of non-human primates who share um, most of our neuroanatomy. And the prefrontal cortex is the most different from, say, a chimpanzee's brain than other parts of the brain. But there are some parts that are quite similar, but then also there are abilities that chimpanzees have mentally that we don't like the ability. We've sacrificed our ability to count things very quickly and to have a good sort of short term memory for a language ability. And so there's a, a give and take here. Like a chimpanzee will always be a memory game.
1: Really? Yeah. I wasn't it, aware of that.
0: It's, it's funny, isn't it? And uh, this the sort of difference here I is that. I wasn't
1: aware that they could count things quicker than us as well.
0: It's, it's sort of a very visual thing. So the, the sort of justification for it is chimpanzees and other primates um, tend to forage food in social groups. And if there's a limited amount of fruit on the tree and a certain, you know, part of your your troop, your, I, I forgot what they're called, but it's certain- a gang, let's just yeah, call them a gang. Gang of chimps, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One hoovers up loads of fruit, and some of the others don't have enough or you don't have enough as as a chimpanzee you've got to have empathy for the chimp and put yourself in its its uh, absence of shoes and i think that they count very quickly so they know how disproportionate the the sort of sharing is is going if if that makes any sense
1: it's not the best way of phrasing it
0: but if, more if or less a, it's a way of keeping track
1: of the group and how pro social they are so what you're saying is that chimps are secret commies? Yes. And they're checking the constant equal distribution of bananas around the commune?
0: Mm-hmm. Well, that's why many primates have Is this, this... why
1: they're constantly at war with one another and murdering <laughs> each other? Is it that why? It might be. They
0: also uh, do um, uh, commit cam- cannibalism sometimes, so oh they could be goodness. communists. Mm. But this is why um, humans and other non-human primates um, have this sort of innate sense of fairness that is cross-cultural, that if, you know, someone puts, you know, a thing of a hundred M&Ms on the table to share between us, and you took 99 and I had
1: one, I would feel like, hang on a minute, that's a bit greedy. You of all people. I would say it was simply market forces, Josh, and how can you argue against that?
0: Yeah, but interpersonally.
1: <laughs> no such thing as interpersonal market forces. Well, that's just called basic competence. You snooze, you lose the rules of the rainforest.
0: Market forces, all right. <laughs> if you're listening, that was me pointing to my two fists. But um, to carry on with the, the theory of the sort of unconscious mind, because that's the sort of more novel and developed part of Freud's theories because he wasn't as interested in the conscious mind because it was something that was within our awareness and so we kind of had an intuitive understanding of what our conscious mind is because we that's the part of our mind that we usually experience because of course when we think when we talk although we don't necessarily um directly say I want to think this thing and it it pops in our head we still have some sort of conscious post hoc attempt to rationalize well I thought that because this you know we're not necessarily the one saying I'm going to think this and then the thought happens it just happens because the unconscious mind is the sort of dominant force in your mind and that makes sense because you wouldn't actually want to consciously and deliberately um all the things the unconscious mind does because not only would it constantly require attention it would probably end up being less energy efficient than um, the current arrangement we have
1: so in that are you referring to things like intrusive thoughts can pop up every so often as well as the unconscious processes that your body does yeah well all 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 thoughts are
0: a product of the unconscious though in in that you don't choose you don't consciously say i'm going to think about this and then the thought happens because you know you can say, um, "Don't think of a white elephant." And
1: what's immediately popped into my head? There yes. you go.
0: Um, so it's it's one of those things where you don't necessarily have complete conscious control over what your mind does, and in fact, it seems like you don't. But he also formalize a very important point that consciousness is downstream from the unconscious which is this thought I've been um, talking about now and I wholly agree with this I think this is a very important point to make and shouldn't be understated and this I think his is breaking down of the unconscious mind and conscious mind is his most important contribution in, in my view and that had it been someone else who was there at the the sort of infancy of psychology proposing other theories it might be that our understanding of human consciousness and unconscious processes would be much more stunted than it even is now and you know we're still quite a ways off understanding it so that shouldn't be understated and you know he's worthy of remembrance even for this even if some of his other theories are questionable
1: so so this is this his biggest contribution to psychology as a field then
0: um it's a matter of sort of taste if you will Mm. depending on which psychologist you ask but i i would say so and i think it's not that controversial to say it It is it's also worth mentioning as well uh,
1: because this is something as well that i would say has been one of his big contributions to um literary and visual media as well Mm -hmm. so many horror stories in particular think of silent hill for instance play on the idea that you're haunted by the deepest depths of your unconscious, that which you've tried to forget and scrub from your mind, but never really goes. And that's what stayed in there and haunts you. So that's interesting that that seems to be a big influence that they've got from Freud. Mm -hmm. Of
0: course, people like William James, who was an American, and um, even Arthur Schopenhauer described um, notions of the unconscious mind. But They certainly didn't go to the same lengths to popularize it as Freud, and I think some of his characterizations, um, you know, he could have interpreted it differently to them. And there was a sort of atmosphere at the time of everyone kind of had their own theory of the unconscious mind, at least within these sorts of intellectual um, circles that are interested in, say, the philosophy or Mm. psychology of mind.
1: So filtering through Freud's theories has somewhat standardized all of these different theories. It seems like it, yeah. and I think it, I think it helps as well that I've read from my sources that the American Psych- uh, Psychological Association was for a very long time chaired by presidents who were psychoanalysts first and foremost. So it seem, I imagine that that is a result of um, a lot of the influence that he's had on psychology as a whole is downstream mm-hmm. from that as well. Well,
0: until the um, behaviorists came along in the 20th century sort of early 20th century, that looked at um, sort of conditioning. So if an animal is put in this situation and it has this stimuli, it will behave in this way. And it had this very sort of mechanical view of of behavior. Um, It was the ascendant theory. And then eventually behavioralism was sort of pushed out of the limelight by the cognitive revolution, which is still ascendant to this day. So there, there were sort of stages of psychology, but um, psychoanalytic perspective has always remained in the, in the background and is still taught to this day. I was taught it um, at university, although it was within a, a history of psychology lecture series. So it mm. wasn't necessarily focused on this. Is, these are current theories that need to be looked at.
1: Well, that, that's one of the interesting things that I've read, which is that within Psychoanalysis. If you were to take strictly a psychoanalytic course, unlike other fields of science, it's something that is very, very reliant on the initial theories that came out of Sigmund Freud. Uh, of these are the foundational texts. Whereas other uh, other scientific avenues or, or fields, I should say, tend to acknowledge those initial foundational texts say for instance charles darwin's on on the origin of species but they say but we've come a long way since then and our knowledge of it has adapted and evolved since then whereas psychoanalysis because of the fact that the processes for it can be somewhat less than scientifically empirical um is very very reliant on the initial theories that arose from it
0: Mm mm-hmm um, to kind of steel man elements of Freud he did rely on case studies um, for his work and when you are actually starting off trying to um, figure out the nature of a mental illness you actually start with the case study first and then extrapolate out once you have a rough idea of what the symptoms are in common with lots of um, other patients with similar conditions or the same condition and so that method actually made sense, but it was to how he went about it and his interpretations that are, are questionable. But first, I think we need to go over the id, ego and superego, which each correspond to a part of the uh, the human mind, be it the, the conscious mind, the pre-conscious and the um, unconscious mind. So the id is the instinctual pleasure-seeking part um, of the psyche and it's driven by the pleasure principle. Um, the ego operates on the reality principle which mediates between the id's desire and the external world and it's worth mentioning that the obviously the pleasure principle is quite sort of intuitive I don't really need to explain that but basically it's you know the sort of hedonistic drive to you know eat lots of food and, and drink booze and have sex That's Pleasure sort of thing yes, yeah, yeah I mean I think everyone knows what that is um, but the reality principle which corresponds to the ego um, is the ability of the mind to assess the reality of the external world and to act upon it accordingly and then you have the super ego um, which represents the internalized societal and parental values serving as a moral conscience so the the superego is like uh, the thing that is um, perhaps conscious to us, because of course, would our- this
1: be say societal pressures, the values that your community imposes on you? Or well, society
0: saying- and your parents, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the the ego is like the, the mediator, and I think actually um, the the way it works in actuality is that if you were to sort of define these two things, the id, if you will, that pleasure seeking, certainly the unconscious mind, that's fair enough. That's its sort of corresponding thing. But I think the ego and superego are around the wrong way if you're gonna have it like that. I mean, the I think that the ego is fair to say and to use interchangeably as the conscious mind. And I, you don't need this mediating factor in the middle to, to my understanding at least.
1: To watch the full video, please become a premium member at lotuseaters.com.